Just out of curiosity, how many of you have um, heard a sermon or a talk on the Good Samaritan? Okay, that's interesting. How many of you have heard two or three? Okay, it, it's a funny story because I think it's really well known and I think that's one reason why it sometimes doesn't get preached on because, you know, just it's a bit too well known. But I think, it, I think it's probably one of the most underrated stories of Jesus. Uh, on Sunday we're going to look at what many people think is the most difficult of Jesus' stories, although frankly, and I'll, I'll share why I think this is true on Sunday, I think it's, it's not difficult at all, which might mean that I'm an idiot, so don't miss that. And tomorrow we'll look at the most wonderful of Jesus' stories. Um, there's a guy called Philip Jensen, who some of you may have heard. He's a much-loved and much-hated figure. Uh, depending on all sorts of things. Um, but he, he asked a group of young um, trainee ministers what they thought was the distinguishing mark of a real Christian. And uh, they gave all sorts of answers. But then uh, he gave the right answer, in my opinion. He said, no, I think the distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. Um, Philip is, is felt by some to be a tough Bible man, you know, uh, change the world, evangelize. But he, he's right, isn't he, I think, on that. The, the distinguishing mark, if you're a Christian, uh, is that you should be a, a man or a woman of love, and not just of, of love, but of growing love. 1 Thessalonians talks about the, the apostle says that, you know, I, you know, I hear that you're loving, may it be true more and more. Um, I ought to be more loving this year than last. It, it may get harder to see as, you know, when you first become a Christian, it's often quite easy to see that you become more loving or more truthful or, or you know, less foul mouth. But it, it, the progression becomes a little slower. Um, at so many weddings, when I worked at the private school uh, here in Sydney that I served at at Shaw for uh, uh, nine years or something, um, 1 Corinthians 13 was the reading so often, a beautiful reading and not entirely inappropriate, but not directly on it. But the interesting thing was that 1 Corinthians 13 is like a bucket of freezing cold water because it, it, he says you may have this gift and this gift but if you don't have love you're nothing, right? And he doesn't say you've got a problem. He says you're nothing. Zip. And he says it about three times and he puts all sorts of gifts and possibilities, even the gift that he thinks is the most important of all gifts which is the gift of prophecy. He said even if, you, if you're excellent at it but you don't have love, right? It's zero. It is the great mark of the Christian. Uh, it's the great mark of Jesus, the great mark of God, of course. Now, before I pray, um, there, there's just a little thing that in, in the translation that I'm using here, for some reason, the translations we've got in English are wonderful, and I don't want to uh, uh, be offensive to anybody here who may have studied, studied Greek so they can do the New Testament. Learning Greek is basically a waste of time, I think. Um, but... It, but it's, 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 it's got its uses, really, particularly when the JWs come to your door. But the, English, trans the tr English translations are utterly brilliant. But occasionally, in my humble opinion, or in my arrogant opinion, they, they, um, they miss something. And this, I'm just noticing this one where it, it leaves out, you know, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And it leaves out a little phrase, and behold, on one occasion... A person stood up to test Jesus. And the word behold is the Bible's way of saying, this is, you know, this is, you want to check this out. So there's, there's an emphaticness about the importance of this story, which unfortunately is, is left out. Now, I, we've got a Facebook site at, back at uh, Canberra, even in the third world, we've got Facebook down there, but, um, and people use it to pray. Let me just, I'll show you what I've, 
what I've asked them, I sometimes ask them to pray about things, although sadly um, one of our best prayer warriors died a week and a half ago. Um, I won't bore you the first sentence, but I've got here, I would really appreciate your prayers that the Holy Spirit would enable people, I'm talking about you guys because I've told them where I am, that the Holy Spirit would enable people to hear the voice of Jesus and not just mine. And since people in Canberra are praying that for you, why don't we pray that too here, that, that you'd hear the voice of Jesus tonight, not just Ian's voice, which is frankly a waste of time. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your presence with us as you promised. Your glory is hidden from our gaze, but we understand it by your word and by trusting your word and by the work of your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we ask that we would hear your voice calling into our lives as individuals and as a little part of your family, that we would be changed by what we uh, think about now. So please speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Firstly, the background. of The the reason why this story is is misunderstood is, and I did it this morning, uh, which is, and I ended up talking to the bloke, where our... It's been wet in Canberra and apparently the NRMA are doing a lot of calls where people have been bogged on lawns that they've parked on for years. And that happened uh, to me. I took our van. I got this 2002 van that we've turned into a camper van, but it's also good for carrying junk. And we're taking some stuff down. Alison was going to take it down to Terrera. Um, and it got bogged. Not deeply, because I, I could feel the wheels going, nah, stop, let's stop. And we, I tried to push it, tried to put things, anyhow, we ended up getting the NMA, they got us out. And I just think that's a wonderful job, what the NMA guys do. And they're, so, they're normally so friendly and polite and so helpful. And I said, oh, you blokes are kind of like, you're doing the Good Samaritan thing. And then I said, no, you're not, are you? And the guy looked at me and said, um, I said, actually, I'm giving a talk on it tonight up in Sydney. And he's not doing a Good Samaritan thing. You, you could perhaps, you could use it and it's not, but that's to misunderstand the point of the story. And just to turn a primary colour, turn a bright, powerful, startling red into a really insipid pink. Nothing wrong with pink. Um, in fact, someone the other day said that I'd done a Good Samaritan thing, which we hadn't. Ellie and I were driving down from Canberra to Nowra at night and the road there had been so smashed around by the rain that there were massive potholes. So when Alice and my wife came down the next day in the other car after her shift was finished, she, uh, we lost two tyres in her car. Thankfully, they didn't blow up until we were till the next day, and I hit a tiny pothole and boom. Uh, but this poor guy had, had gone through two tyres. He was about 18, 19, in the middle of nowhere. His phone didn't get any reception. I've got Telstra, which is a lot of money for no use. It couldn't get any reception. Um, and we picked him up and took him and drove him to his home. And now it was no big deal. But, you know, his father, who I met a bit later, you know, they, they used the... Goodness, that's not a good Samaritan. That's just been... That, that's a decent thing to do. But we tend to think of it so that the Anglican Church, I don't know if they still have it, used to have bins where you could get rid of your junk. I mean, you could generously share your old clothing with, <laughs> with people. And they're called Good Samaritan bins. Again, the Anglican Church should know better, but there's... You could say that about a lot of things, couldn't you? But don't. I can. You know, but, um, but the Good Samaritan bins, they're not Good Samaritan bins. Um, the way to understand it is this, that, and you'll know this, I'm sure many of you, but I'll just I'll be quick. There was 400 years of absolute hatred between the Jews... Jesus' people, and the Samaritans. 
A hatred that most people in Australia, unless you've come from somewhere like Yugoslavia, and I'm not having a go at Yugoslavia, we've got some Yugoslavian people in our church and I love them, but the hatred that there is between the Croats and the Serbs and the Herzegovinans, you know, the, the Muslims, the Catholics and the Orthodox, you know, it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and you build up a lot of resentment over that period of time. That's a bit like it is between the Samaritans and the Jews. So just give you one simple example. The Samaritans built a temple in their area, so the Jews thought it was a scummy temple and they shouldn't have it, so they went up and uh, tore it to pieces. Well, that doesn't help your neighbourly relationships. So a couple of years out, the Samaritans um, got some dead bones, and, oh, most bones, but bones from dead people, and scattered them in the temple a couple of days before the Passover, which meant that in Jewish law, the, the, the building's unclean, they can't do any of the God rituals in it on one of the biggest days of the year. So they did studied acts of hatred. It wasn't that they just annoyed each other accidentally because they had the wrong sort of music on too loud. They hated each other and they worked at how to hurt each other. And um, if, if I was a Samaritan, if I, if, I was, no, if I was a Jew and you were a Samaritan, and this is my favourite cup, right? this is from my great-grandmother. You can see all the gold and that, and it's very expensive. You know, it's one of those cups you go, look at them, oh, there you go. Um, and and you're, you're a Samaritan and your shadow went over this. No matter how good it would be, I would smash it, I would never use it again, and we would bury it. Because it, would, it had just become unclean and you would be deeply spiritually polluted if you drank from something which a Samaritan's shadow had gone past. So I'm just trying to, I think it's helpful to see the level of hatred that there was between these two groups of people who lived right next door to each other. That's the, that's the vicious background I think needs to be understood. So one of the biggest insults you could give to someone was suggest that they might be a Samaritan. So in John chapter 8, verse 48, in a pitched battle between Jesus and the religious authorities, they say, in 8.48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Right? That's about as as abusive as you can get. Am I not right in saying that you're a Canberran, right? And you have a demon, right? Take your pick, right? So that's the important part of the background. I'm sure many of you know that, but that's what's going on. It's a very vicious, troubling history. Now, Jesus has that interaction with the man, and the man gives a brilliant answer, which Jesus himself gives an answer to that question uh, in other parts of the Gospels, that that is the summary of the 613 commandments. Because uh, the Jews had a number of different ways they summarised the 613 commands that came down from Mount Sinai. But love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbours yourself is the way Jesus summarises it. This guy also So he's, his head at that level is okay. His theology is good. But he's hostile to Jesus. He, uses, he asks him a question to test him. Um, it's the word that can also be used of tempting. So he's trying to expose Jesus as this nobody or as a theologically uh, illiterate. Jesus gives him a good answer and then the guy gives a good answer. Oh, the guy gives a good answer and Jesus says, well, go and do it. And the man trying to justify himself. So again, he's not asking for good reason. He's trying to, so he, obviously you can feel as if perhaps the audience have laughed at him, that he's been skewered. And he says, well, then who, who is my neighbour? And before Jesus answers the question of who is his neighbour, he tells this story. And it's a very well-known story, and so it should be. But to hear it afresh will be good for us. 
So uh, you, you know how it goes. In verse, the man says, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a long, uh, Jer Jerusalem is quite a high point, and Jericho is below sea level. It's just, it, the whole road is very clearly downhill as it winds its way down. Some of you may have walked down that road. Has anyone done that sort of trip? Jerusalem to Jericho? No, good, I can say whatever I like. Um, no, no, that's him. But um, uh, he's on his way down. And that road was called the Road of Blood in those days because it was a perfect road for ambushes. It wound its way between rocks and the caves and, and it was a dangerous road. It was a road you never went, you know, you never said to your sweeter, hey, honey, why don't we go for a walk? Let's go for a bit of a stroll, shall we, from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? It's just really dangerous, the, the road of blood. Um, and it's still dangerous. It's still, I, I met someone a few years ago who parked their car uh, on that road, and when they came back to it, they'd have been broken into and stuff had been stolen. It's a great place for thieves. And this guy's on his way. He's obviously going for a reason. As I say, no one does that road for fun. And he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Uh, it's just worth noting how, how unbelievably wealthy you and I are because if you get robbed, it's very unlikely anyone's going to strip your clothes from you. They might take your wallet and your phone and a few other things. But so, so poor were people, generally speaking, back then that they would take your clothes because they could sell them on the market. So, um, you know, when we think we're not very rich, we're, of course, very, 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 very rich. Um, but they steal his clothes. So he's basically left naked on the side of the road, bleeding out. He's been beaten up. He's been robbed of everything. He's lying on the side of the road, bleeding, half dead, presumably on his way to being fully dead. He's a man in terrible need. Um, then we have the first of the neighbours go past. A priest happened to be going down the road. Now, that's got to be good news because the priests didn't just do sacrifice. The, pri the priests were the main teachers of Israel as well. Um, you only get a prophet if you're in trouble. You know, I, I grew up thinking priests do the God reconciliation stuff, prophets do the teaching God stuff. No, no, no. the priest teaches the, word, the, the law of Moses and does that. You only get a prophet if you've been repeatedly disobedient. Um, so this is a guy who knows the scriptures, that he should love his neighbour, so he's in luck. He's a priest, um, so he knows what you know. He knows the God stuff. You know what happens? He goes down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Right? He saw him and passed by on the other side. Uh, you may have seen this. I've seen it. I've seen myself do it. Where there's something that's troubling, and people pretend not to see, and they don't step over his body. They walk on the other side of the road quite carefully. They're trying to put distance between them and a crying need for help. Well, that didn't work. So too, a Levite, when he came to... Now, just the priests, Levites, sort of Anglican vicars, pastors in independent churches. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Anglican vicars walked past, of course you'd expect that. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But the Levite comes past, he's the next level down. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side of the road. So he does exactly the same. Sees, ignores, moves on. <clears throat> now, 
You can read all sorts of books, and you may have heard this in sermons, where people try to explain why the priest may have done it or why the Levite may have done it. And they've got all sorts of reasons about the holiness code and all sorts of things. I suggest to you that's an utter and total and complete irrelevance. Because if it was relevant, Jesus would have told you about it. The key thing is, here's a very devout man, the sort of the holy of the holies, and he ignores him. The next level down, right, he sees him and ignores him. And the man is left on the road, naked, half dead and bleeding out. He's in, he's in real trouble. And then a third man comes along, and I don't want to be crass here. Um, the third man is a Samaritan, at which point, if you were Jesus' hearers, you go, oh, crap, he's really in trouble now. Samaritan, because they were just dirty dogs. And Now, um, Samaritans did travel that road, but not often. It would have mostly been Jews on that road. It's their part of the world. Um, Samaritans would sometimes need to go to Jerusalem for some reason, and they'd be in and out quickly, because they were, they were not at home there, and they were not welcome. There may be some traders from other places, and obviously some Romans would go up and down there occasionally. But a Samaritan comes. Now, if you're Jesus' friend, you think, oh, now he's in trouble. This guy will probably kick him to death. And I, I, um, I remember getting some boys at shore. I think they were in year eight or year nine. In fact, we, did some, we, we, we got them to act this parable out. So they did some work. And, and I still remember this boy. He was quite clever, but crass, you know, schoolboy. But um, he, he just pretended to unbuckle his pants bend over him and empty his bowels on him. And it was, it was memorable. Um, and it wasn't a bad indication of what the Samaritan could well have done because he'd have every reason to suspect this man was Jewish. That would be the default and obvious position. And so the expectation is he will see his enemy on the side of the road and laugh and rejoice like I feel when certain players from the wrong rugby league team get hurt, whoever is playing Souths or whoever is about to play Souths in the next week. Right? I don't wish them harm personally, but I do wish them injury. Um, and, and if they're a good player, serious, long-running injury, and they can get a job at McDonald's and do something honest. But um, you, know, you, you do rejoice when your enemy is hurt. Well, it's hard not to. But this, this Samaritan comes past and look at what, what Jesus says of him. Although it's much more wonderful than we might catch at first glance. But a Samaritan, oh dear, as he travelled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him and he went to him. Now, he sees like the other guys. He goes to him instead of avoiding him. But the crucial, beautiful thing is in those words, he took pity on him. And the word there is a, is a, in the original language, and you can find this in any commentary, is a word that pops up about a dozen times in the Gospels. It's normally translated compassion or something like that. But it is only used of Jesus or of God the Father. Or in the parable we'll look at tomorrow, of the person who is clearly God the Father in the, in the story. It's a God word. Right? It's part of the beauty of God, that he is a God of compassion that he's not indifferent to our suffering, although we will often feel that he is, but he ain't. He is moved. And this, as many of you, this is a word meaning his bowels, his, his, his lower gut is stirred because the Jews tended to think that your emotions lived in your gut rather than in your heart. 
And that's because, as you know, at various times, you know, when you fall in love or something happens or you're frightened, it, it's your gut that, is, that feels it. So that's where they spoke of emotions. So his guts were moved, like God is, like, like what drives Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. He is moved by our suffering. Uh, he doesn't, you know, God could easily say, well, it's your own silly fault. And you could say this, like, you're an idiot for travelling on your own uh, when you did. He could have all sorts of ways to blame. But his gut is moved, and as I say, this is the only time when this word is used of a human being apart from Jesus. It's a beautifully strong word, this God-like Samaritan. And he goes across, and there's this cascade of action. As he travelled, the Samaritan, he came upon the man, he saw him, and he really saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine, which was seen to have sort of uh, medical cleansing help. Then he put the man on his donkey, which meant he got off his donkey, so he is now walking rather than riding. Brought him to an inn, and we think that inn is still there. It's been there for a long, long time. And he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's two days' pay. A denarii is basically what a labourer got for a day's pay. How much is that now? I mean, frankly, is it... $150, $200 for a labourer, a day labourer. You know, um, so it pulls out a, a not insignificant sum of money and says, look after him, he says, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, this, this is a guy who is doing what to his neighbour? You know, the, the thing is about love your neighbour. So he sees his enemy... Now, he could very easily... Here's what you know if you see a guy who's been beaten up and robbed. There are, there are robbers. There are violent robbers here. You'd have every reason, man, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to hot-foot it. I ain't stopping here. Someone should. The ambulance should. Someone should look after him. I ain't doing it. He's not even my... He's almost certainly amongst the sort of people who would hate my guts anyhow. But he doesn't. He, he endangers himself. Um, as I say, he wasn't out for a stroll... He's out doing something, going somewhere, almost certainly on business, and his business trip is broken up. Hours and hours are spent, discomfort is spent. Right? He's now got to walk rather than ride. Who knows what, you know, how his knees were, etc. He spends time with him in the inn. He gives you know, hundreds of dollars to look after this complete stranger and says, I'll come back, and if he owes you any money, I'll, I'll pay for it, which is kind of nice because historically, if he'd been there for too many days and had a, an expense to the innkeeper, he could become a slave of the innkeeper. That was the way that he would pay his debt back. So he's, re you know, he's keeping him safe from uh, being healthy but miserable. So this is what the man does. This is what the Samaritan does, which is why we speak of the good Samaritan, which is you, I'm sure you know, is words that people couldn't say in those days. A Jew would never bring those two words together. It's not here in the passage, but that's how we summarise it. But right, here's the good Samaritan. He's the Samaritan um, who is godlike here. And then Jesus, then Jesus gets to his question, right, which is, which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And you see what Jesus has done. The man is asking, who is my neighbour? Where can I build the fence that I don't need to care about those people on that side of the fence? Who's my neighbour? Who's not my neighbour? And the Jewish scholars of that day used to work those questions out for you. And they would most certainly say that the Samaritan was not your neighbour. Right? Your neighbour would be your fellow Jews, would be the basic way they take it. And even then they might say you're righteous Jews. 
Jews who kept the law, etc. Pharisees, if you were a Pharisee. So, but Jesus says, no, no, that's not the question. The question is, which, which, was, which was a neighbour? So he's saying, don't ask who is my neighbour. Jesus, you can just, this is subtle but very powerful. Jesus says, be a neighbour. Be that person who, who cares for the person near them in trouble. Be a neighbour. Never ask the question, is that my neighbour? Because the answer is yes, that is your neighbour. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's a very, so the man gives, you know, the, Jesus says, who's the, who's, um, which of these do you think was a neighbour? And the expert in law gives a very fine answer. The one who had mercy on him. Now, people note that probably he couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan because it was just impossible for him to speak of the Samaritan as a good guy. So he just sort of depersonalises it, replaces one word with a sentence. But it's a beautiful sentence, the one who had mercy on him. That's the one who was the neighbour. And that's, that's what this story is about, isn't it? it it's about being a neighbour. This is the mark of the Christian, that the Christian will love their neighbour. Um, or worse, in fact, I've got written down, every now and then I write in my Bible um, verses that are, are relevant to this. So um, I've got here 6.28, so let me go to Luke 6.28, which is sort of the Sermon on the Mount sort of thing. In Luke, Luke 6, 20. Listen to what Jesus says. People sometimes think, yes, if you live like the good, like the good Samaritan, you'll be saved. Well, that, you, that means you're going to go to hell for sure. I mean, let's face it. You, most of us in this building have not lived our lives loving our enemies, have we? People, when they're telling me how good they are, because that's what they think ministers are concerned about, they hear I'm a minister and they tell me how good they are. And um, Which is funny, I never hear Christians do that. But people who aren't Christians, they know I'm a minister. They think, oh, you must be here, you know, doing moral point. No, I'm not interested. But all they say is that they love in the most useless way, basically, in the way that Jesus only... Listen to what Jesus says. Hear what, hear what Jesus says. Luke 6. <clears throat> but to you who are listening, here, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. See, normally we pray for our friends, those who we love and care, but pray for the ones who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn them to the other one. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Then verse 32, This is when Jesus repeats things in different words, it's because he really wants you, us to get it. Listen to what he says, verse 32. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, e.g. bankers, lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But... Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, and your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So, see, this is the mark of the Christian, isn't it? It's that sort, it's, it's that sort of love. It's growing into that sort of love. Uh, this is why it's absurd to think that this will tell you how to get to heaven. Because I know hardly anyone who can say, yes, I've lived my life like the Good Samaritan. 
always loving my enemies, lending to people who hate me, praying for those who despise me. Right? It's a thing we have to grow into. It's, it's, it's very, it's weird. You need the Holy Spirit, new life, right? and constant reminder to do this because it is not natural. You meet people in churches who, who don't talk to each other for years because there's been some misunderstanding or they've been hard to me or they've mistreated me. No, no, no. Love the very person who has made your life miserable. Right? Now, of course, there are various times you need to work out if the person is going to do you physical harm. Etc. There, there are times where you want to talk to wise people in the church about how you... But the command, the only command we have is to love. I was talking to a guy um, today, uh, not today, this week, whose wife, as far as I can tell, and I've only heard one side, so you don't know anything in a sense. But I, I don't disbelieve him, but I'm always aware when I hear a story you don't really know. And even if you hear the other side, who can possibly work out what's going on? But, um, but he is, his wife you know, has, has done some pretty extremely difficult things to him. Um, but interesting to all he knows, he knows his obligation is to love, love, love. He's just got to work out how to do it. Right, and yet I know another man who, who who's pushing himself forward into Christian ministry, who's an absolute monster to his ex-wife, um, and he he doesn't he doesn't even call her by name. Will not even call her. Uh, and when he when he's with his kids, he's got these weird phrases he uses for her. And I remember talking to said, "Brother, you have to love her." I think he's as responsible for the marriage breakup anyhow. I said, "Because you're told to love your neighbour, and she's your neighbour. She's your wife." Still, they weren't divorced. She is your wife, and you're called to love her like Jesus has loved you, Mr. Perfect. And I said, and if she's your enemy, you're specifically told to love her. The only calling we have is to love, and especially someone who we want to put on the fence out there. We have to keep loving them. Now, how you do that, you may need help, but the determination, what does it mean to love? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is classic Jewish sort of rhyming couplets, in rhyming in meaning, not in um, the sound of the syllables. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So what does it mean to love someone? It means to seek to do good to them. Now, sometimes you can't. Sometimes they've made it impossible. But that's the goal, and that's what this is talking about. The good Samaritan is someone who's loving his enemy. That's why the NRMA guy was, was not really doing a good Samaritan. He gets paid for it anyhow. And when we picked up this young guy, Jacob, that's not really a good Samaritan. I mean, what sort of a monster wouldn't pick someone up like that? We, we kept the window down at first when we pulled up just in case he was a murderer. And um, uh, he wasn't. He, I think he was as scared of us as we were of him. Although we're in sort of a hippie van, so you know, hippies aren't supposed to kill people. But um, <clears throat> So, you know, but it wasn't really good Samaritan stuff. Uh, because it, it, but it's in that sort of right direction. So, but that, that's what that's what we're being called to. Now, this is what Christians do. Uh, we have done it over thousands of years. I remember when I went to Melbourne for a wedding many years ago. I met a young man who was a refugee from Eritrea. He wasn't particularly religious, but he he was being he'd been befriended by these Christians and been invited to their wedding. And I talked with him for a bit. I'd never met a person from Eritrea before. It's part of Ethiopia. Well, they don't think they're part of Ethiopia, but you know that, that's what they're fighting about sometimes. But anyway, it was interesting. Muslim guy, and he said, um, he said, I couldn't help noticing when we were starving, because at various times the Eritreans have been starving to death, I couldn't help noticing when we were in Eritrea that the plane loads full of aid came from what he called Christian countries. 
He said we were, you know, about a 10-15 minute flight from the wealthiest country in the world, Saudi Arabia. Um, he was Muslim, they were Muslims. He says not a cent, not one grain of wheat came to us from them. But from what he called Christian countries, England, America, Norway, Australia, food was, and apparently when we send aid, we have our, we have our flag on it just to let them know how nice we've been. But he was, he was, he was, he couldn't help noticing that the people who paid money to help them were, were not fellow Muslim countries, they were Christians who had nothing to do with Eritreans. Right? I can be kind to Eritreans if I want to, it'll have no impact on me. If I don't, they'll just die quietly, I won't know. Right? But he noticed that it was Christians who did it, because that's what Christians have always done. And then he noticed, he said, when, when Eritrea began to be built up again and, and they recovered from the famine, etc., he said, the Christians, the churches, all built orphanages because so many of the children had lost their parents. He said the mosques didn't. The mosque got very towy about it, he said in the end. He said it, it just seemed that the Christians just did it. And they didn't ask you, are you a Muslim child or a Christian child? You know, they just said, if, if, you're, if you need help. And he was, he was very struck by that. And I was, I was struck by his struckness. And that's because Christians will tend to do that, both uh, you know, structurally and individually. And I remember a lady called, um, I'd forgotten about this till today, because I had lunch with Hans and a few other people, and one of the guys was a sure old boy at the school I was at, and he seems to have survived and seems to be fairly psychologically healthy, which is wonderful. Um, but there was a teacher there called Victoria, and she became a Christian when she was at Shore, and, and, and still is, I think. I haven't seen her in about a decade. But, um, and I said to her, you know, how did this happen? Well, she said, I'd been talking to Christians off and on through uni and stuff like that. But when I came to shore, it's got all these weird systems. Um, like they're kind of nice once you learn how to use them, but they're very idiosyncratic, very sure uh, into the systems. And she said, I just realised that every time someone was staying back after work to help me, I discovered after they were Christians. He said, almost without exception, it was Christians who stayed back to show me how the wretched computer system worked or the weird report system that we had. <laughs> it looked quite nice, but it was mad if you were on the other side of doing it. And she said, and that, just, that was in the end the thing that blew her away. She said it was just this consistency of people who didn't say, I'll help you, Victoria, and by the way, Jesus loves you. Uh, she just discovered as time went on, which is, of course, what you'd expect. Right? Why are people loving her? Because she's a neighbour. She wasn't particularly their enemy, but they didn't owe her anything except that they knew that as Christians they were called to love people. And the thing for, this, for the prodigal, the prodigal, I'm getting all excited about tomorrow, the thing, the thing for the Good Samaritan was he, he wasn't roaming around trying to fill in a, you know, a lazy Saturday afternoon. He was going somewhere, he had an agenda, it was dangerous. In excess, an old Australian band, a million years old now, they had a song which I always liked, the particular friend, they said... Um, if I'm serious, love is dangerous. It changes my life every day. And that's absolutely right. If you if say, I'm going to live lovingly, it'll be dangerous. It, it will ruin your plans at times. You may get in trouble with people who you've got plans worked out because at various times you think, I just have to help here. Um, now, we've all got multiple things to balance here. But I want you to hear the force of this story that Jesus tells um, People sometimes foolishly say, oh, well, you know, love your neighbour. So that, that's, a, that's a commonplace in world religions. No, it's not. 
That's a nonsense. That's the sort of confident statement undereducated people make. Um, but they all say it, so it must be right. Uh, people have rightly said the silver law is common, but the golden law isn't. The silver law is don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Now that is, you know, in many in many philosophies, uh, many worldviews. But love, you know, do to others what you would have done to you is not. Right? One is don't harm people in a way that you would want to be harmed. The other is saying help people in a way that if you were in their position, you'd want them to. It's why all around the world, and we as Christians, I, I, you know, I spent years of my life thinking that well, it was a bit like Harry Potter. You know, if you remember that, that the beginning, I've only got to, I got to book three. Book four was too long. I think I ain't reading any book that long that, is, that isn't essential reading on understanding the universe. And that book wasn't. So I got to the end of chapter three. People kept saying you should read it, but then they did say, yeah, it does wander a bit. Yeah, of course it does. Uh, by the way, you know why she did seven books? Why, why she did seven? Harry, it, because she was basing it on C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. There you go. She was a, and that's why she's got that funny J.K. Rowling. She, she put the K there because she's an admirer of J.K. Tolkien. A very interesting lady, and good luck to her. But um, what was I rabbiting on about? <laughs> I could keep talking, but that would be dishonest. Um, Oh, yes, in the early parts of those stories, if you've seen the movies or read the book, is Harry Potter grows up with this understanding that his parents have been jerks. And he doesn't like it, but that, that's the story he's being told, that his parents were, were jerks. And then he discovers they weren't, they were heroes. I, I, for decades of my Christian life, I thought Christian history was just burning witches and fighting crusades. That was it, that we'd done nothing else except cause trouble, 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 trouble. Right? And then I begin to discover... Everything noble and honourable about Western culture is derived from, from the teaching of Jesus. And as you, some of you all know, Tom Holland, uh, by, uh, probably an atheist, uh, he's written a whole book called Dominion. Um, he's hated by the other atheists now because he just says everything that, everything that we judge the world on is, is because of Jesus. And um, what, what you'll find is, again and again, organised, like Amnesty International, now, you might, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry with some of the antics that they go on with in some areas. Where did that start? Started in the church. Little church in England that started to write to, I think they wrote firstly to Pakistan or something like that about getting some justice and they found that people were released. RSPCA started by overt evangelicals in the kindness of animals. When they were trying to look after the children who were being mistreated, they used the laws they'd got passed to protect animals until they could get laws through. Uh, an enormous number of stuff that our culture takes for granted that's part of the inevitable progress of humankind comes explicitly from Christians loving people they didn't owe nothing to, except Jesus says we do. Uh, you'll know the hospital by the river, that amazing hospital. It's, sadly, it's now significantly owned by Oprah, so it's, it's lost um, something in it. A, an extraordinary hospital um, that does these operations on young women who've been damaged by having children far too young. And it just, it's just it's beautiful. And I remember I'd never heard of this woman, Catherine Hamlin, until she came to Australia trying to get someone to replace her husband who died. Um, and I remember reading the story on the front page of the Herald, it was sort of middle with a picture, and I said to a friend, this woman has to be a Christian. There was nothing in the Herald about her being a Christian. Mind you, if she'd been abusing children, it would have been front and, front and centre. But I said, she has to be a Christian. I said, why is it? I said, no one but a Christian would be stupid enough to go and live in a country which was in the, in the middle of civil war, 
that she owes nothing to historically. They're not her people, but she's there loving with her husband for decades. Now, someone like Fred Hollows, who's done a lot of good, Fred Hollows has had his huge house on the North Shore and he would go across to places like Ethiopia for a few months. Now, that was beautiful what Fred did, right? And I think a lot of it was inspired by his father, who was a Methodist lay preacher. Um, that's, but that's another story. But So Fred does that, and we all go, wow. And I remember saying to my non-Christian mates, if you knew the story of medical, medical missionaries, you wouldn't be at all. That's not impressive. I mean, I'm thankful he de- does it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not disparaging it, but people like Catherine Hamlin, the world is full of people who do that sort of stuff. Africa's full of Christians who go into the most abs- you know, absurd situations to love. Uh, some of them die young. Some of them have a long-term ministry. I've got a mate. He was just back in Australia for a while. When I first met him, he was a very wealthy, pretentious, and I don't care if you hear this, Andy, because you were and you are, um, private school boy, rich, generous. He used to loan me Land Rovers and all sorts of things. We only had one car and three kids in sport, etc. So he offered lend us one of his ridiculous cars. So he's generous. He's now a street preacher in the worst township in Cape Town. Where he said he said he thinks he's been shot at more often than any Australian apart from the guys who went to Afghanistan. But he said, thankfully, the young gang guys can buy guns, but they haven't learned how to shoot them. So they they only kill you if they get really close and go bang, 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 bang. The other week, 16 of the young men that he knew and loved and cared for were killed by intergang. Like, it's serious. I grew up in Rose Bay. You don't have to be very tough to be the toughest boy in Rose Bay, I tell you. But these guys, it's a tough area. Why is he doing it? I mean, I, I do think in the end, Andy will probably die there. He's been sort of miraculously cared for so far because he's just right in the midst of it. Jesus, you, you just love, not people who are convenient, but you're available to love as Jesus has loved. And, and I think you know, some of you will know, and I'm getting near to an end so you can relax. Um, some of you will know, and some of you may have heard sermons like this. I heard a guy doing it once and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I've never heard this. I've never heard anyone preach like this, where they make this whole thing into a, an allegory. So where the man who was beaten up on the road by the devil, religion comes past and doesn't help. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He comes, he, he, he puts the man, he puts us on his donkey, which is his humanity. He takes us to the inn, which is the church. He gives them two coins, which is the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he says, I'll come back. It's perfect. It's just complete baloney, right? <laughs> but it's brilliant. The guys who worked it out are brilliant. But there is a sense in which Jesus is like the Good Samaritan because it's the compassion thing. It's the not standing back and saying, okay, you got yourself into this trouble, you goose, on the road of blood. What were you thinking? Right? But he does come and save and rescue uh, because he's driven by compassion. And the thing for Christians is that has to be us. Now, this is what Jesus is trying to make us. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be merciful as your Father is merciful. And as you grow as a Christian, you will grow to understand things better, but really the key area of growth has to be you are becoming more loving. And yet I'll tell you what happens to old people, and a guy who worked, a guy, Romeo Denali, who was a missionary in Italy and is now does ministry amongst old people particularly, he said, and I said to him, we had this lovely lady die recently at our church uh, two weeks ago, Lilius. And I said, I don't know when to say this to the old people in that church, 
but she is so different from some of them. Lilius never used her personal preference or the enormous debt we owe her for her love and sacrifice over the years in order to get us to organise church the way she wants it. Whereas we had, we've got a number of old people in our church who are just childish. And I'm trying to work out at what point do I say, will you grow up? You know, your church cannot work its timetable around for five, six hundred people around your preferred wake-up time, right? Or whatever. But they do, they get very cranky with us because we don't do nothing. And what, what Romeo said to me, he said, Ian, if you're, as you get older, often the ugliest parts of your personality become dominant if you don't keep putting them to death. And I, I'm not, I'm, I haven't been given any hint from um, Hans that there are any grumpy old people here, apart from me. But, um, but I just think the great thing with Lilius was she never did that. You know, she stopped coming to things at times because she just couldn't get there anymore. But you didn't get the feeling we should move everything back half an hour because, you know, she found it inconvenient. It's the willingness to keep loving and to keep loving rather than becoming more and more selfish. And that's what should be happening as we grow. We become more loving, more generous, more loving to the unlovely, seeking God's grace to forgive and to build up true and lasting harmony. So that's the value of the story for us. Well, how about if I stop there for any, any questions? Because we've travelled, we touched on, and I know there are balancing issues that may need to be asked, but I hope you feel the drive of this passage, that, that this is what it is, right, uh, to love our neighbour. It's to love the unlovely and the unlikely. And we find that's, that's what the Spirit of God is doing, that making us a bit like Jesus, who's loved you <laughs> and me. All right, any questions before we pray? Okay. You know, also, if you're a single woman driving down the road where we picked up Jacob, I would suggest don't stop and pick up Jacob. Right? But maybe stop and tell him, when I get on the top of the hill, I'll get on my phone and I'll make sure that the police come and get you. You can do something. But you've got to be, you've got to be wise, I think, but not so wise that you do nothing, which is what we end up doing. Right? Uh, I hope that doesn't think, oh, that's just blown your, your whole sermon apart. But I think we do need sometimes to, to work out how we help. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let me lead in prayer. Then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, it's your voice that we want to hear and your opinions that we want to take seriously. Thank you for this amazing story that you made up with the most unlikely person as a hero. Thank you for the way in which that guy is like you and the way that you treat us. You see us. Uh, you feel deep empathy for us and you do all that's necessary to heal us and restore us. Help us, Lord, as a community uh, and as individuals to grow more and more loving. Uh, that this would be the mark of us as a community and the mark of our families and the mark of the way that we organise our lives. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the call to become like our Father who is merciful to the unkind and the ungrateful. Help us to be doers of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to pay for the cup, by the way, if you're not. <laughs>